0: Welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics Completionist podcast. I'm your host, Nick Byers. Uh, And let's get on to episode three, which will be covering um, May 1939 to July 1939. As I've said in previous episodes, the time, the actual real-life time that we're going to be covering is about to get real incremental because as comics become a more prevalent media... You know outlet um, people realize that they're going to be staying sticking around they're not a flash in the pan more comics are going to be written and so we're gonna have a lot more to cover uh, in a shorter amount of time so let's get into it first let's set the scene the real world, world history of May 1939 to July 1939 so in my research they do talk about Batman Being first introduced in May 1939. Obviously, we know that he was introduced, or rather, the comic book that he was first introduced in was released in April 18th, 1939. But the cover date is May 1939, so in the popular record, Batman isn't introduced until May 1939. But enough about that. To other real world stuff not related to comics. Spain, in May of 1939, leaves the League of Nations. And if you don't know what the League of Nations was, it's the precursor to the United Nations. It was uh, largely designed by world, world, Woodrow Wilson after World War One in order to prevent any, any other large-scale world wars and, and the atrocities that c- come with them. Uh, it failed incredibly, mostly because the United States did not join. Congress decided against it, and it was largely a failure um, because... After you know Spain leaves, other countries leave, other other big-name countries leave, and it eventually collapses, and World War II comes about. Not because of it um, or because of any actions. It does. It's basically a pointless body. But it leads to the United Nations after World War II, so it's got its place. Sweden, Norway, and Finland refuse Germany's offer of non-aggression pacts, which is very, very important because if they had signed these pacts once World War II... Uh, Starts they wouldn't have been able to do anything, but instead they are able to do anything and they are helpful in the war. Uh, Germany and Italy signed the Pact of Steel, which is a pact of friendship and alliance between Germany and Italy. The first section of it was an open declaration of continuing trust and and cooperation between Germany and Italy. Um, The second section was the secret supplementary protocol, which encouraged a union of policies concerning the military and the economy. Basically, Germany and Italy are becoming allies before any sort of fighting actually breaks out or the war starts in in reality. Uh, The St. Louis, which is a ship carrying a cargo of 907 Jewish refugees, is denied permission to land in Florida after already having been turned away from Cuba. Uh, forced and is forced to return to Europe, uh, and many of its passengers later die in Nazi death camps during the Holocaust. Uh, the United States is it, it likes to portray itself as like the good guy in, in World War II, but there was a lot of you know deep seated racism against, against Jewish people uh, at the time, so they got turned away, and, and, and they are worse off for it because uh, they're dead. But moving on. Uh, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum is officially dedicated in Cooperstown, New York. I do not like baseball. I find it very boring, but that's important. Uh, the last public guillotining, or guillotining, sorry, gosh, in France it, it takes place. Uh, murderer Eugene Weidman, it's probably something French or European, but I'm American, so I don't know how to say it, uh, is executed. He's the last public guillotining. I think guillotining still takes place as... Um, A form of the death penalty, but I think it's more in private, uh, like typical death penalties are, not in the public square as it was in France. Uh, The last remaining Jewish enterprises in Germany are closed by the Nazis. Uh, It's really really taking off this sort of Dehumanizing and de-citizenizing of, of the Jewish people in Germany. Uh, it's about to get real bad for them. Uh, and finally, Lou Gehrig retires from uh, baseball after being diagnosed with the disease that now bears his name, ALS. Um, so that is setting the scene. That's what's going on in the real world as the comics we're going to talk about this uh episode are being released. So uh with that, let's get into the actual issues. So, the first issue in today's episode is Action Comics number 13, a a classic of of the show. Uh, It's got Superman, it's got Zatara, and uh, let's get into it. Uh, So it was released on May 2nd, 1939, with a cover date of June 1939. It actually has a debut of a character that has some standing in in the DC Universe, someone that I've heard of as someone who's... Not read a ton is mostly someone who knows things from the cartoons and stuff like that. The Ultra Humanite, uh, the Ultra Humanite is kind of it, he's more of an obscure villain, but he's someone that I know, so that's that's something. I know him as a big white gorilla who uh, has kind of an ex-bandolier sort of situation. Uh, that's not that's not him in 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 this one. Uh, he's just a really intelligent guy, but uh, let's get into the Superman story involving the Ultra Humanite. Uh, the Superman story, like all Superman stories, this era are written and drawn by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. This one involves Superman. Uh, it's actually it's somewhat two it's somewhat two parted. It's got like it's got like two parts, which is is interesting as someone who's read the previous issues of Action Comics uh, as a part of the show. So it starts out with um, Superman, or Clark Kent is in a cab, and his cab is uh, T-boned by another cab. Obviously, it's the 1940s, nope, 1930s. So they're not going super fast, so everyone's fine. The cabbies get out and you know say, hey, you did that on purpose. Uh, no, I didn't, and they punch each other, and and the uh, someone tells Clark, who was in the back of the cab, about this thing called the Cab Protective League, which is a, I guess, a conglomerate of cabs that are, um, I guess, threatening and, and attacking the independent cab companies. Uh, so Superman, of course, has got to investigate because it's something so ridiculous that it's like, i got, I got to get into this. I'm indestructible, but I need to stop this cab conglomerate from... You know hurting other cab companies which is you know fine but it's just not very exciting so superman goes to the headquarters of carlisle cab company which is an independent company and he luckily uh is there right at the exact time that um someone from the uh, cab protective league is threatening the owner of the cab company what a, what a coincidence superman's so smart he's got the power of super timing uh, so he the the uh, the head of the carlisle cab company is being threatened by someone from the cab protective leave he's got a gun and so superman bursts through the skylight and crushes the gun the guy tries to punch him of course it doesn't work superman knocks him out with a, a flying elbow to the face and his superman does the superman thing by carrying him jumping from building to building uh it's a, it's a known superman trope at this point The guy wakes up, and rather than just being completely terrified like every single other person that Superman has done to this, this guy tries to fight back, which like, hey, good for him. Finally, somebody, finally somebody stands up to Superman in his crazy, I'm going to carry you and scare you by jumping from building to building. So he pulls out a knife and attempts to stab Superman. Uh, Superman is surprised by this. The knife breaks, uh, of course, because it's Superman, and the the trajectory of the jump is thrown off, and instead of landing on the building, Superman and this guy slam into the wall, and they start to fall. Superman grabs onto a windowsill, doesn't break, uh, but the guy doesn't. The guy falls uh, and lands on the ground in front of two of his, uh, you know, compatriots, co-conspirators, and he's dead. Superman basically killed a guy. And all Superman has to say about it is, if he hadn't tried to stab me, he'd be alive now. But the fate he received was exactly what he deserved. I don't know, Superman, if, I guess, threatening someone, racketeering in a sense, is worthy of death. Uh, Superman has a very, very bleak outlook on what um, punishment for crime should be. So, Superman, he's ruthless. At least now, at least back in this day, he gets. I guess compared to this Superman, modern day Superman is soft. So Superman killed a guy, basically. Uh, the guy had a hand in it, but Superman was the one jumping from building to building with a loosely, just loosely holding onto a guy under his arm. But whatever. The two guys that are friends of of, of this guy who just died, they go back to the Cab Protective League. And they're trying to figure out why their friend committed suicide because they didn't see Superman, so they just thought he jumped from the building and died. They don't. The, one of them says that's not important right now. Who cares about that guy? Basically, we got to find out if he got Carlisle to join the league. So they call up Carlisle, and Carlisle says, "Hey, go to hell. I'm gonna call the police on you. Uh, they're gonna go and basically uh, kill him because he's um, gonna snitch on them." But Superman, of course, just in time, perfect timing, comes in and he you know, stops them from driving out with their cab. He holds onto the back bumper and they're like, what's wrong with the vehicle? Why can't we, why aren't we driving? Because they don't, they don't think to look back uh, and they get out and they check it and Superman lifts up the car, destroys it. They try to shoot him. And he then, he then basically forces them to destroy their own cabs while he's also destroying them. Uh, one of them, Reynolds, Attempts to escape, Superman stops him. Uh, he, you know, he beats him up. He destroys the rest of the cabs and he gets the cops to come and and arrest Reynolds for racketeering, threatening, threatening people, stuff like that. Uh, then Superman, rather than using a door, just busts through the wall and leaves. So we cut to a newspaper and saying that the cab racketeer is, you know, he's been he's been captured. He's going to be sentenced. Um, he's being driven in a cop car uh with a couple cops weirdly he's sitting in the front seat and one of the cops is sitting in the back which is weird Uh, um (laughs) police procedure must be very different in the 1930s than it is today uh reynolds asks if he can smoke of course he can it's the 1930s he lights up and and the cab begins to fill with uh, a mysterious gas and and the the cops are knocked out but reynolds is not and he gets out and he says, "Saps never never guessed that cigarette, that cigarette contained a mysterious gas. Who would have thought that cigarettes contained a mysterious gas that could kill you? Not people in the 1930s. I'll tell you that right now." Uh, he dumps the two bodies of the the cops. Don't know if they're dead or if they are just um, knocked out. Uh, we do find out that they are dead in the next shot. Uh, it's another newspaper it says Reynolds escapes captors gassed officers bodies uh found roadside superman reads this uh and he searches the area he finds the cop car uh near uh, a dark cabin he of course busts through the roof because doors are for suckers he finds Reynolds there but Reynolds isn't scared he's sitting in a chair all lackadaisical and whatnot being real chill and he says, I'm not scared of you. Look. And behind them, there's a guy in a creepy white coat sitting in a wheelchair. He's like, I've got him, so I'm not afraid of you. And we are introduced to the Ultra Humanite. He is a balding man. He's got the classic balding man sort of horseshoe on the back of his head of hair. He's wearing this creepy white coat. You know, the ones where like, the, it doesn't button in the middle. It kind of buttons over to the right. Like one flap kind of covers the middle. It's very creepy. It's a very creepy look. He... He explains to Superman that he's the head of a vast ring of evil enterprises, and, and men like Reynolds are his pawns. Uh, and his, uh, he explains that he was born with... Oh, wait, sorry, he wasn't born with. Because of a scientific experiment, he possesses the most agile and learned brain on Earth. Basically, he's the smartest man alive uh, on Earth. Uh, and he's going, he wants to dominate the world rather than do good with it. He specifically says, I prefer to use this great intellect for crime. So Superman, being who he is, he attempts to capture the Ultra Humanite, but Ultra Humanite set a trap and uh, he shocks Superman with enough uh, charge to kill 500 men. Superman, of course, is still alive. They're shocked at that. They know that if Superman's still alive, the Ultra Humanite's plans will always be, you know, threatened. So they tie Superman up to a, a, a board or a table or thing and put them on the put him on the classic death trap of the saw blade you know the sort of lumber mill conveyor belt saw blade where it cuts the big logs in half they're going to do that superman breaks the saw blade as his head starts to touch it because his head is you know his entire body is indestructible pieces of the saw blade fly like crazy reynolds gets stabbed in the throat so that's two deaths this this is the most this is the bloodiest action comics that we've gotten to yet the ultra humanite is narrowly missed he signals for some more henchmen to come they carry him out they put him in a super futuristic plane that he designed and they light the cabin on fire and escape superman wakes up in the cabin that is on fire he escapes of course because he's superman and then he chases after the plane he busts the propeller the pl- the plane and him plummet to the earth the plane crashes and is destroyed but strange he can't find any trace of the ultra humanite. And he says, Well, that finishes his plan to control the earth because he's dead. Or does it? Question mark. And or does it is underlined. Bum bum bum. First cliffhanger. First cliffhanger of the old action comics. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I really like this story. It starts off in, in one of those sort of silly early golden age Superman adventures of like something that isn't really necessary for superman to handle because he's too powerful for that but it does it does end up going in a pretty cool direction and we're introduced to the first somewhat recurring villain of superman's uh, mythos canon the ultra humanite eventually he will become the ultra humanite that, that we all know the white gorilla with the bandoliers who is super intelligent but still very good uh, I like that. I like things that, that things are progressing. Yeah, so that's that's the Superman comic. Let's move on to the Zatara comic or Zatara story in this issue, rather. So, this Zatara story is titled The Swamp of Satan, and it is written and drawn by Gardner F. Fox and Fred B. Gardiner, as the previous Zatara comics have. So, we find Zatara in this issue, as always, being a traveling man. He and Tong are driving in a car, not not no planes, no ships, nothing like that this time, uh, through the swamps of the Carolinas, uh, because a, a friend of theirs, Hodges, we later learn his name is Fred Hodges, uh, needs their help with something something mystical. They stop at a swampland in, you know, a classic chain of, inns that are specifically in swampland they're dotted all around the carolinas you can't miss them uh and they're going to stay the night before traveling through the swamp uh, of satan to get to fred hodge's house to help him because his father mother and two brothers were all killed in a swamp the swamp of satan the next day they they have a great rest at the swampland inn and the next day they they traverse through the swamp to get to fred hodge's house but they're stopped by what a scream that sounds like this eow is what the uh sound cloud word uh says they follow the scream and uh zatara uses some special magic uh to turn into a a cold night wind to race towards this eerie light that they see in the swamp even though it's daytime uh i guess it's nighttime now it i don't know oh wait sorry the search continues all night, I, I'm, or all day. I, I miss that. Sorry, that's on me. Uh, they follow. They using their wind magic. They they get to the source of this uh, light, and it is a evil-looking hag carrying a lantern. And uh, she asks who they are, uh, who who come out of the cold night. They Zatara, rather than giving her his name, because names have power. He says that they're here to discover what you do here. And she says she's seeking her son, John. And out from the woods comes this very, very gruesome looking man, uh, presumably John, carrying a woman in a red dress. She's unconscious. Tong attacks, tries to beat up John, but John is a big, big guy, and he defeats Tong, which is, you know, unheard of. Zatara picks up the woman, uh, revives her, and then uses magic to shrink John down to about, calf height and they capture the hag and tiny john and put them in uh, the back seat of their car and they drive to fred hodge's house it is revealed that this woman is fred hodge's sister eleanor and the uh hag and john escape uh zatara attempts to go after them but fred says no for the love of heaven don't he won't he's being cagey about it he won't say why uh he wants to make sure that eleanor's all right she says that she she is she was coming back from their uncle carl's house and uh she she was john came upon her he wanted money and she refused he hit her and knocked her out uh zatara's like well, why don't you guys want me to go after this guy uh he notices a look of fear between the two siblings and he says, or Fred Fred Hodges says, not right now, later, uh, get some rest, and, and I'll tell you the whole story tomorrow. Uh, but the next day, they're both being cagey about it. John, or Fred just wants to show Zatara his cotton plantation, the biggest one hereabouts, he says, or the wealthiest one hereabouts, uh, and won't talk about the witch. Uh, Zatara goes to Eleanor, and she's frightened to talk about it. She daren't speak on the matter. And then late that evening, um, Zatara and Tong are talking, and Zatara says things seem weird, Uh, but then there's a scream, and Zatara and Tong rush to Eleanor's bedroom where the scream came, and, and on her unconscious body, there is a hex, which is basically like an X on her throat. Zatara tries to get answers out of Fred, tries to help him, and Fred says he dare not. Zatara puts him to sleep, and Fred reveals in a hypnotic state that his uncle carl warned about a witch and her son john or not her son john it's very confusing because it's revealed that they're related to fred and eleanor through the old blood the evil blood uh the witch is fred and eleanor's aunt evil aunt and john is their brother evil brother and the evil blood flows in their veins They're after is money and and his cotton plantation I don't know why they have to be related through the evil blood for that to be necessary, but they do because this is a Zatara story, so you need some mysticism, and I'm fine with that. Uh, So they're going to go to Uncle Carl's house, or Zatara and Tong are going to. They go through the shadow plane like they often do where they're just silhouettes in the background, and they overhear Carl talking with the evil hag. Uh, She's afraid of Zatara, and Uncle Carl says nonsense. He's only human. And the hex that they put on Eleanor will work. She'll wander into the swamps and John can kill her. And we then cut to Eleanor sleepwalking through the swamp. Zatara, while being on the shadow plane, conjures up things like sidewalks to get her over to over uh, quicksand and back to her house safely. So now that Eleanor is back at the house, uh, Zatara reveal, reveals to her that Uncle Carl is behind the hag and John and wanting... The plantation and all of the money. Eleanor reveals that Fred is afraid that the, the the stuff about the evil blood will come out. Eleanor says better alive and possibly ashamed than dead. And so they're going to go and convince Fred that they just need to, you know, nip this in the bud rather than trying to hide it. Uncle Carl is there. He's shocked to see Eleanor alive. And it cuts to John and the hag outside. John has a gun and he shoots Zatara and Tong and uh, the hag john and carl take fred and eleanor away to the hags cabin in the swamp carl is there he's trying to get he says uh where are the deeds to the plantation and he's trying to get the information out of them he's using john to torture them zatara wakes up he heals tong but apparently can't heal his own wounds uh so tong does first aid on him zatara and Tong uh, are transported to the cabin, and Tong busts through. He He does away with John. Zatara turns Carl's gun into a snake before he can shoot everybody, and he turns the witch into swamp water, slimy water of the marshes. Tong chases John out into the swamp, and john sinks in quicksand and drowns even though you cannot actually drown in quicksand i believe you can only sink down to your waist height about john fred and eleanor are freed and they all live happily ever after uh, a, a a good a good zatara story a little bit of mysticism a little bit of evil blood you know some magic no backwards talk still i'm a little disappointed i keep trying to read zatara's incantations backwards to see if they spell anything they never do Uh, Maybe someday, Uh, but that is the, that is the Zatara story and that is Action Comics number 13. Okay, let's move on to our next issue, which will be Detective Comics number 28, released May 11th, 1939, with a cover date of June 1939. This issue uh, has no debuts. In it, no rookie laps for any characters this time. Uh, And it includes uh, a Batman story and a Crimson Avenger story. Well, of course, as always, as always, it's only been one issue. But as it will from this point on, we will be starting with Batman, the most popular of the two stories in Detective Comics at this point. So, if you remember last time Batman uncovered the plot of a wealthy man in the in the chemical industry killing off his business partners so he could have sole ownership of the chemical plant it's it's a very famous case it's referenced in in the future batman as his first case uh i believe it's referenced in the uh, scott snyder um storyline of of dark metal it's referenced to the chemical syndicate uh story it's a very important story so, moving on to the second one. Not as important and also not as interesting. So, this one is a basic jewel thief, you know, story. Like, a, a gang of jewel thieves is stealing jewels from apartments uh, of the wealthy, And Batman loves to protect the wealthy because that's what Batman does. Just kidding. He also protects the poor, but he's a wealthy guy. It's just, wealthy people are the only people that have things worth stealing. So, I guess it makes sense that he protects them. But, it starts off with this... This one specific panel of this uh, little newsboy. Uh, this might be one of the primo panels for this episode, but it's it's funny because he's speaking in a way that the words are misspelled, like he spells jewel or he speaks jewel, uh, J O O L instead of right, like how it's actually spelled. Like he's so uneducated that his his words come out misspelled, which is that's funny. Um, but so first, Batman or Bruce Wayne. Starts off uh, doing some some old school trickery by uh, calling a known confidential informant. Uh, back in the day, they're called stool pigeons. Uh, confidential informant gives them a little bit of you know respect for what they do, uh, and is not as silly. So he calls this stool pigeon Gimpy, not the same Gimpy from previous Superman stories. He's likely in jail. Uh, he. Bruce Wayne pretends to be Commissioner Gordon and asks him if he asks Gimpy if he knows anything about these jewel thieves, this jewel gang that are doing all these thieves, thieves, thefts. And uh, Gimpy tells Bruce Wayne, who's pretending to be Commissioner Gordon, that they're going to hit the Vandersmith's apartment tonight. So now Batman's got the information. Uh, We then cut to two of the jewel thieves coming out onto the roof of this apartment building batman is hiding behind uh, a chimney uh, he's holding on to it like he's afraid he's going to fall like he is afraid of heights which is kind of funny to imagine batman jumps down and uh i will mention one of the things that they do in the batman comics that i've noticed uh, or these early detective comics that i've noticed is they put quotes around batman it's 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 still bat dash man and there's quotes around it every single time, like they're almost I don't know if they're almost like embarrassed that he's called Batman or they want to make sure that everyone knows that he's not actually a Bat man it's a it's a it's a nom de plume if you will it is an an alias so it's just weird it's just it's just constantly Batman and i I can't stop myself from reading it as Batman. With quotes around it, so he beats up these jewel thieves. Uh, he throws one off the roof, uh, presumably to his death. Uh, again, Batman's a murderer, and anyone who says otherwise is a liar or uneducated. You know, one tries to stab him, one tries to you know kind of fight him off. Uh, at the end, all by himself, after his compatriot's been killed, Batman knocks him out, and then they do this thing where, um, again, Bob Kane and uh, Bill Finger uh, love to use quotes batman seems with quotes to be waiting That so this is this is the 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 blurb sort of the caption for this next panel it says the body of the man that went over the roof has attracted the police period they seem quotes to quote surprise the quote batman who quote drops the bag of jewels uh that was quotes working overtime to imply to us that this is only what it seems like this is not actually what's happening and this is all part of the batman's plan which they do tell us he says sorry gentlemen and then he does a backflip off the roof and then uses a rope no grappling gun yet just a simple rope a silk rope though so fancy and very strong and lassos some flagpoles and swings down and the cops are really impressed so then the cops now think that batman is involved and the caption underneath it says this is exactly what the batman wants the cops to think he wants them to think that he's head of this jewel gang or like involved with this jewel gang and it's in the it's in the gotham tribune although the town isn't called gotham yet so it's just called the tribune and it says batman head of jewel gang eludes capture by spectacular leap uh, and the actual head of this jewel gang perry blake is reading it and he is kind of in a meeting with the rest of the jewel gang and they're like great uh, the cops think Batman is the, the, the head, so they'll be looking for Batman, so we're in the clear, and, uh, unbeknownst to them, that's exactly what Batman wants, and he's hanging outside the window, uh, kind of spying on them, I don't know how they don't see him, he's just kind of dangling there from his rope, in full view of this window, I, the curtains are drawn, or not drawn, they're closed, in the shot of this gang, so I guess, but then how is he, I guess he's over, he's just listening, or does say listen, he's listening, Uh, so they're going to, they're going to do another job and the Batman swoops in through an open window and, uh, beats up all of the, the jewel thieves, leaves them there, kind of tied up, calls commissioner Gordon and says, Hey, it's me, the Batman and, uh, the Batman with quotes. And he tells him like, I've got this gang at this Norton house. Uh, you can come and get them whenever you feel like it. What a nice guy that Batman is. Uh, he's a criminal and he's doing crime for the greater good but what he does is crime that's what vigilanteism is and then he he speeds away in his red non-bat themed car to where you might ask to perry blake's oh gosh it's not perry blake i'm such a fool it's frenchie blake which is much worse which is a much worse name to frenchie blake's apartment frenchie blake is playing solitaire because he's there all alone he's very sad and lonely because his gang is out why don't you go out with them frenchie Go out on the jobs with them if you're so lonely you're sitting at home smoking playing solitaire. Come on. He hears a knock on the door, he thinks it's his boys. It's like, boys, come on, why wouldn't you just come on in? Because it's not your boys. It's Batman. Batman beats him up, ties a rope to him, dangles him out of the window, classic Batman thing to do. Says, You're gonna you're gonna write this confession, you're gonna sign it, and you're gonna go to go to jail or else I'm gonna cut this rope. Frenchie's like, Fine, pull me up. I swear I will do that. He's doing that. He's he's signing he's writing and signing a, a complete confection confection. Confession. Uh, but then suddenly just leaps over the table to attack Batman. But what does Batman do? Punches him right in the jaw into the table. Frenchie loses his chutzpah at that point and says, Please don't hit me again. Don't and he cries a little bit. And then the Batman uh, ties Frenchie up, carries him to his car, drops him off at the police station. With a note and uh, the jewels, and the last shot is uh, of Commissioner Gordon reading a, a note from the Batman saying, "Hey, here's this guy, here's the jewels, and here's a confession." Uh, and then he says, "Till we meet again, I remain." And then he signs it, the, and then just a picture of a bat. Doesn't write Batman, just picture of a bat. Which is like the man. The man knows his theatrics. He is a, he is a thespian at heart. Uh, he actually probably is a pretty good actor seeing as Alfred, who doesn't exist yet in this continuity, is also an actor. So that's cool. Uh, but that's the second adventure of the Batman. Some good, good, you know, street-level Batman kind of beating people up, doing acrobatics, using gadgets, even though his gadget at this point is just like a rope. Uh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So moving on to the Crimson Avenger story for this issue. And boy, oh boy, is it a... Story, so it's it's titled the the Bagelon Ruby. It's of course written and drawn by Jim Chambers, and I don't know he doesn't have a lot to work with. He only gets six pages, but man, is it not good. There's just you have to imagine a lot in your head. Like they don't tell you. It cuts to random scenes. It's so bad. So the story is that it starts off Lee uh, Lee Travis, Crimson Avenger. Uh, the editor of the Globe Leader. He's in his office, and he's just found out that the Bagalon Ruby has been stolen, and the insurance company suspects Laura Fay, the owner. Uh, in comes uh, Miss Laura Fay uh, with Lee Travis's secretary, uh, Miss Blaine. She explains that a, a man in a turban followed her into a taxi and took the Bagalon Ruby from her. Travis asks, you they suspect you? Can you explain that?" Before she can. Uh, the door busts open and three three men in turbans come in. They have a knife to Miss Blaine. They say uh, that Travis, Lee Travis, will face the wall and they're going to take the girls. Uh, Travis jumps out the window, uh, tackles one of them, uh, freeing Miss Blaine. And yet in one shot, there's still a guy holding a gun on him as he's tackled and pinned to the other one. But that's not explained. It's not referenced the kidnappers get in a, a car that's waiting and drive away. Uh, Lee Travis jumps on the running boards of of a, of a taxi to to chase after them, but another car kind of sideswipes him or something. It just says a second car knocks him from the running board. I guess okay, uh, sure. Uh, he's in he's in the hospital. A doctor says you should rest. That evening, the Crimson shows up. Lee Travis in his the Crimson outfit. He goes to Laura, Laura Faye's apartment. Apparently she's not kidnapped anymore. Whatever. She's there. He's surprised she's there. She says they got the ruby and then let, him, let her go. That makes sense. That's what kidnappers do. It's not. She's like, now go away. The Crimson wants to know where they took her and where's Miss Blaine. Uh, laura Fay says who are you you seem to know all about it but then she just before getting an answer she just says that they're keeping Miss Blaine and are threatening to kill her should the police find out laura Fay answers the phone and says oh that's terrible i'll be right over and then just leaves the crimson in her apartment not not explained she leaves her apartment the crimson follows her to this uh abandoned uh tenement house uh, he crawls through the cellar window. He gets to the third floor. A man with a Tommy gun has him. He uh, shoots him. No gas gun in this uh, issue. Just straight up shoots him. <clears throat> and if it was if it was supposed to be the gas gun, that's fine. But it certainly looks like he just shoots him with a regular gun. Uh, the door opens and, and some turbaned man come in. And of course, the Crimson is captured because he always is. He's in the he's in a room with Miss Blaine. And who else is in there? Laura Faye. They, she just says, they left me here. I'll set you two free. I had to return to save Miss Blaine. Why didn't you save her in the first place? But whatever. Before they leave, the Crimson sprinkles some uh, gray powder into the turbans. And now he's, he tells the girls to return to the Globe office and keep the police there for whatever reason. Why not bring the police to where they're at? I don't know. Uh, he taps into the phone line like he did last issue i think and calls it says three doctors not sure what that means he is he he jumps over the back fence towards one of the doctor's office he arrives just in time to see three men come out he clings to the back of their car um, like he does on occasion to follow them the three get out at the waterfront and go to a small boat and get into it the crimson follows at a safe distance he's ambushed and captured again he's put into the car and driven somewhere he's put into an empty room with miss blaine again and she says that that Fay wench tricked her so laura Faye is in on it uh and and this guy this random guy in a suit and hat says you got other company too crimson there's a cobra in that box over there and you won't like he won't like you uh, there's a the, co- the box is open the cobra comes out uh the crimson asks miss blaine to whistle he she does and she is a snake charmer i guess because all you have to do is whistle and snakes are charmed that's how that's definitely how it works the crimson takes his cloak off and grabs a snake uh the door is apparently opening and he uses the snake to bite the guy's hand he throws the snake in there and then miss blaine says i wonder how they liked the itch powder in their turbans we've we haven't seen that we saw him put the powder in there we didn't see them react in any way and then sirens are wailing, wailing. the police are here, and the Crimson leaps out of the window. Uh, and that's the end. Like, I get it. Six pages is not a lot. You have to tell a story to, I guess, fill those pages. And I know that comic turnaround, especially back in this day, is quite quick. And you don't, you know, you're doing it all by yourself. But it's a terrible, incoherent story. Like, the beats are there, but a lot of stuff is referenced off-page, and it, there's just really not much of a payoff. We don't see anybody go to jail. It's a bad story. It's a bad story. We can, we can admit that. We can admit that with hindsight. And even at the time, they're probably like, this is a bad story. I didn't like this at all. No stars. No stars. So that's issue. That's, uh, that's Detective Comics number 28. Half good, half bad. <clears throat> Sometimes that's the way it is. Uh, so on to our next issue, which is Superman number one. This is the beginning of the, the trope of DC Comics where their two big names get multiple comic iterations. Uh, Superman number one along with Action Comics uh, will cover Superman and eventually we will get Detective Comics and Batman covering his stuff. So, so let's get into the actual issue. Uh, these early issues have multiple stories. They're longer than, than standard comics or at least longer than the stories that we've been covering within other comics. There's still anthologies, just like action comics and detective comics. So there's 64 pages in all, but it's all Superman. And this first issue is interesting, and these first issues of the Superman comic run are interesting because they reprint stories from action comics, and they reprint stories from uh, the Superman serial newspaper comic strip that was in black and white and it was in newspapers but they colored it put it in this uh, these comic books this is a way to get the reader who doesn't want to read action comics with all the other stories that aren't superman and just wants to read superman so why not reuse some of the stories from action comics that maybe the casual comic book fan or the casual superman fan won't have read yet this has this first one at least is important uh we're gonna for future issues of this that are stories that we've already covered we're just going to skip over those parts and just cover the stories within superman that we have not covered because why rehash stuff that we've already hashed but so this one is important because it begins with a new newly like refurbished redone origin of superman um if you remember in action comics number one it just says that superman's planet got too old and he was sent away on a rocket And that's all the information that we have. We don't, I don't know if they, I can't, I'm pretty sure they didn't name it Krypton at that time. Uh, It is named Krypton now. So we, this is the first uh, appearance of of the phrase or or the planet named Krypton. It's also the first time we see uh, the Kents. We don't, their names are a little bit different at this point in time. Um, We don't have John's name, but Martha is actually named Mary in this one. I'm I'm sure that that will be changed eventually because eventually she is Martha. Kent, as we know from the most important scene in Batman vs. Superman. Super important scene and definitely not stupid. The new blurb uh, for Superman's origin, the beginning, is just before the doomed planet Krypton exploded to fragments. A scientist placed his infant son within an experimental rocket ship, launching it towards Earth. Okay? So, last time... In the original origin in Action Comics number one, Superman crash lands to Earth. He's found by a nameless, faceless couple brought to an orphanage, um, presumably lives his life in the orphanage, develops his superpowers, and becomes an adult. This one is a little bit different. So he still crashes on Earth. He's found by the Kents, an elderly couple. So they're older. They've been aged down, obviously, as, as Superman has been aged down as well uh, to fit modern times and stuff. So this is an elderly couple. Um, Mary and, we presume, John Kent. Uh, they find a baby. They're just like, okay, he's a baby in a rocket. So they send him to an orphan an orphanage, and this is where he first shows his strength. He lifts up a dresser as a baby, and the orphan people are, like, shocked. And then a little, you know, I don't know how much longer, it doesn't say, time passes, and the Kents come back, and they say that, you know, they couldn't get the child out of their mind. They want to adopt him. And and the orphanage is like, that's great because they did not want to have to deal with that. This is also um, this is also the first time we get Martha and John Kent being sort of Superman's guiding light, guiding force in in his morality. That he gets the this sort of mentality of of, of fighting for the oppressed, uh, because they they say that. You got to hide your strength because it'll scare people but you do need to use it to help humanity because that's you know you've got a gift so you should use it and then we get new new images of showing off superman's powers he jumping up jumping over buildings jumping long distances picking up cars beating trains uh going to the doctor and not having the needle stab him in the arm Uh, he pulls a little prank on the doctor and the doctor is like this is the sixth hypodermic needle i've broken on your skin and Superman, being the prankster that he is, he's like, try again, Doc. It's, don't waste the man's time. It also reveals that the Kents are now dead. They have passed away. But that just strengthened Clark's mentality that he had they had instilled in him, and so he becomes Superman. Uh, we also, in this issue, have an introduction to the first story in Action Comics number one, which, if you remember, we, we were in Meteor Res with Superman carrying a woman that's bound like through the air. So this this sets that up. So first, Superman goes to the Daily Star. He wants to get a job. He doesn't have any experience, but he knows he'll be a good reporter. Uh, George Taylor, who is not named at this point, says, I can't help you. Clark gets the idea that if he is the first one to breaking events, he can convince uh, George Taylor that he, is a, he can be a reporter. So he turns into Superman, jumps up, hides by George's window, waits for him to get a phone call, then a mob is attacking the county jail, and then he rushes over there, and this mob is busting down the door of the jail. Uh they pull out a prisoner, and they are attempting to lynch him. Superman comes in, this mob thinks that they're gonna take just this one man. He beats him off. He beats them all back and they are they're they're stopped from lynching this guy. Uh, Superman takes him down, from the rope puts him back in his cell because he is a prisoner um but he wants the story so this guy tells superman this story uh, of real life events that jack kennedy not not the president not john f kennedy whose nickname was jack was murdered by not the person who was in jail evelyn curry she's about to be electrocuted the death penalty for this murder and this guy in the cell reveals it to be b Carroll, a singer at this nightclub She killed Kennedy because he was cheating on her and then framed Evelyn. So first, after hearing this, Clark gets on the phone to George Taylor, the editor of the Daily Star and and says, I've got the story for you. Can I be a reporter? And uh, since this is comic books, uh, George Taylor says, yep, of course, Uh, report to work tomorrow. Then Clark goes to this club, the Hilo Club or High Low Club. Oh, I bet it is High Low. This High Low Club. And watches this woman who is the murderer sing. and then later uh, he hides in, his, in her dressing room as Superman. When she comes in, he reveals that he knows that she killed Jack Kennedy and that he is going to bring her to justice. She tries to shoot him, of course, he breaks the gun. She tries to, you know, kind of use her feminine wiles to to get him to stop. He says, no, of course, because he's Superman. And then he picks her up and carries her. Out the window and then it the next page is the beginning of action comics number one superman story and the exact they didn't even redraw it they literally just reprinted it because it, it's still got the weird shading and the weird coloring on it the other stories in this first issue of, of superman number one uh are that one that we've just talked about the one that starts with that and then moves on to there's going to be a war then it moves on to war in san monte which is the one where superman goes and convinces them to Uh, the war you know profiteer to stop profiting off of war and he makes peace Uh, then there's the one with the miners and the the poor safety regulations in the mine and then finally there is the football rigging the championship football game college football game story there is also at the end a text story which is two pages i'm i didn't read it uh, and i'm not going to because it's a lot of reading Uh, not that i don't like reading i do like to read i'm a big reader but it's not important for this. It's they're often just kind of silly little things. So yeah. So that's Superman number one. It, it's interesting. It's flesh. It fleshes out uh, Superman at his origin and him as a character and how he got to the position that he's in now in life. Uh, so that's important, especially when he if he's going to be the sole focus of an entire comic book, an entire anthology comic book. Uh, it's it's good for him to have more history more backstory for him to make him feel like a real character and not just some character in a collection of characters in action comics the anthology so that is superman number one Alrighty, moving on to action comics number 14 released june 2nd 1939 with a cover date of july 1939 no debuts in this one either uh superman and zatara like it has been since the beginning so let's get into it So the Superman story starts off uh, with a subway collapse. Uh, I will say, before we get into it, Zatara gets the cover treatment again. Pretty cool. Uh, He's on there. There's a woman uh, in Egyptian-like garb sitting in a fancy throne uh, with snakes, and Zatara's holding his hands up doing some magic, and, and Tong is there looking all scared. Pretty cool. But back to the Superman story. So it starts with a subway collapse. Uh, a subway tunnel collapse. Scores are injured. This the newspaper says. Superman, of course, is suspicious. So he uh, jumps down through a metal grate and is inspecting the tunnel. And he finds a piece of concrete or cement and it crumbles like sand, he says. He's super strong, but it must just be implied that he's not using his super strength, because otherwise they'd say something like, with his godlike strength. No, they wouldn't say godlike, because that would be anti-Christian at the time, or, or blasphemous. Uh, they'd probably just say something about his strength, crushing it. So it, we, can, we can assume that it crushes like sand, which is bad when making subway tunnels. I'm not a civil engineer, but I, I think subway tunnels should be stronger than that. And he agrees. Superman agrees with me, so I have to be right. So just then, someone is coming. Superman notices that someone's coming. And he sees another person inspecting the cement. But suddenly, this man suddenly is attacked by two other men, both wearing suits, both wearing hats. And as they're attacking him, a train is coming. The two men, you know, after beating him up a little bit, they they scram, they get out of here, and uh, they leave the man to get hit by the train. Easy peasy, um, a perfect... Uh, hit. A perfect assassination. Or it would be if Superman wasn't there. Superman with his super speed grabs the man and is running in front of the train because as we know he can run faster than a train. So he's running in front of the train and the the driver of the train is even shocked. So he's like a man racing the train beating it am i going nerds is what he says nerds which is not a word that i've heard before uh superman jumps onto a subway platform to get out of the way of the moving train and then jumps out onto the street and then jumps out on top of a building he does a better job this time doesn't drop the guy and uh, does cause a car crash with his spectacle you can see below there's two cars crashing into each other and one says hey watch where you're going and the other one says what in and then it kind of drops off and there's a bunch of question marks because a man is flying through the sky so he talks to this guy and it turns out that he's the city inspector and his name is hughes and he was suspicious of the work in that tunnel that this company star company did He thinks they did it bad and with bad materials. Superman then asks if he knows who the men who were were that attacked him. He says, no, but they probably worked for Star uh, Incorporated, the Star Company. That's great. That's a lead. But just then, a quote, and I'm quoting from the, the comic, a department store detective abruptly dives at Superman. So a man has come up to the roof. Because you know Superman's up here and he dives at him. He says, "Gotcha! Will you come with me peaceably?" Or so Superman must still be wanted from destroying the slums, uh, so they would build new apartments. So that's good, and that's continuity right there. That's an ongoing thread. So Superman's just going to be attacked by, you know, random people trying to bring him in for, I guess, the reward that's still out. Maybe I don't know. They don't say because he just Superman threatens to throw him off the building, and the guy says, "No, don't let me go," and. Um, and then off Superman goes, he goes to the building that the star company is in and he just so happens to see those two guys walk in. What a lucky break. Good job, Superman. He's almost seen by a woman, an office worker, employee, woman, lady. I don't know what her job is. It's probably secretary because this is the 1930s and women are only secretaries in offices. Uh, he goes up a floor and he finds the star company star incorporated's offices and inside are the two men that attacked the city inspector and another guy these two guys inform him that they did a good job killing that city inspector and uh and the guy presumably the the boss of star star incorporated says good i'll pay you i'll pay you well for this wait till i answer the phone he's like i'll pay you but i gotta answer the phone first business is you know it's a business day it's a work day gotta gotta do business But who's on the phone? Oh, gosh, it's someone. And they say that Hughes, City Inspector Hughes, is registering a complaint against the company. But he's like, what? He's dead. And he calls these two guys fools. He calls them idiots. He says he's alive. He calls them bumbling. And they say, no way. We left him on the tracks. And then Superman comes in through the door and says, maybe I can make it clear. And it's like, oh, okay. Superman did it. He saved his life. Dang it. Dang it. So the two guys, the two thugs try to attack him and of course he just kind of lifts up a hand and blocks their punch and he says, ow, my fist, Then the thug does. Superman blocks the door and says, no one's leaving here until I give the word. They've got to discuss some stuff. The boss tries to call on the phone. He tries to get help. Superman crushes it with his super strength and then he's going to have the guy sign a confession just like Batman. Maybe they're, maybe they're talking and being like, this is how we can do stuff. Force people through threats to sign confessions that aren't admissible in court because they were made under duress that's what he does he he pulls him he holds on to him outside the window and says confess you know sign this confession and he says yes i will but as that's happening the two thugs which superman is sillily like a silly guy tur- kept his back to them or turned his back on them they push him out the window and superman is confused he's got a little question mark over his head he's like oh huh? Uh, and he's falling to the ground, but of course, it's gonna be fine. Don't worry. He's Superman. Uh, Superman's like, okay, I got this. I, I'll, I'll be fine. I just hold on to this guy. I just don't wanna cause an accident. Well, he does. He falls. He kinda bumps into this tr- streetcar. And b- before it can topple over, he stops it and writes it back onto the, the rails. So it's all good. Then he jumps back up into the building. oh shoot. Those two thugs are gone. Of course they are. Why would they stay there? He makes the guy sign the confession great job good job Superman and then he goes up onto the roof and tries to find him and lucky him they haven't even made it to their car yet maybe they took the stairs or maybe elevators are just really slow I don't know what a 1939 era elevator is anyway I know what it is it's an elevator but I don't know how fast it is or you know it's 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 top speed uh, so maybe that's maybe that's plausible I don't know but anyways he starts to follow the car And this is the classic Superman scenario. He's going to catch up to the car. He's going to grab the car. What? He doesn't? No, he doesn't. Because as he's about to grab it, the car turns invisible. He's like, what the heck? Those two dummies are too dumb to make a car invisible. This has got to be something nefarious. And so he tries to follow the car, the tracks that the car left. And he finds, he comes upon this deserted shed. Gotta love a deserted shed. But wait a minute. Wasn't there a deserted building in the last issue yes there was superman finds the invisible car next to this deserted shed busts through the wall as superman does because doors are for chumps but as soon as he busts through the wall he falls through the floor into a box into a tank it says and a machine starts and who's there it's the ultra humanite superman's greatest foe and only recurring foe at this point which like, hey, if I had not if I had not known that the Ultra Humanite was in this episode in, in this issue, I would have been surprised. I've been like, what? He's alive from the plane crash, and the, the Ultra Humanite says, yeah, it was a parachute. Whoa! Why didn't Superman think of that? Because Superman's not bright. So the Ultra Humanite is behind these thugs and and the Star Incorporated's nefarious dealings. And it's all part of his plan to, to get domination of the Earth. How does? Poorly constructed subway tunnels have anything to do with that? I don't know. He doesn't say. But he encases Superman in crystal. And he calls Superman my mortal foe. So that's cool. Uh, And I was thinking when I was reading this, I was like, Ultra Humanite looks a lot like Lex Luthor. So that must be why he eventually becomes a big white gorilla. Because they don't want him to look like Lex Luthor in a wheelchair. Because he's bald. He's clean shaven. And he's super smart, just like Lex Luthor. So that's that must be why. We'll find out, obviously, but uh, put in my theories now. But, um, of course, Superman busted the crystal because nothing can hold him. He's Superman. He's great. He uh, tries to capture the Ultra Humanite, but the Ultra Humanite, with a wave of his hand, his chair is dropped beneath the surface of the floor, kind of an escape um, free fall. He tries to find him and tries to bust through the floor, but can't find him down there. He grabs the two thugs. The invisible car is gone, so the ultra-humanite has escaped again. Good job, ultra-humanite. You really are the smartest man in the world. Goodness. He takes the two thugs to jail. He gives the confession to city inspector Hughes. Clark Kent puts in a story. It says, A powerful expose, just in time to make the latest legislation. Dang it, Cl- Kent. Good job. Just all right in the nick of time. And his editor says, Where the heck have you been? Because we haven't seen Clark Kent all episodes been all superman and then clark kent is sitting at home thinking he's sit- he's wearing a robe and he's looking sad and he says the ultra Humanite has got to be stopped before he succeeds in his succeeds in his mad plan to dominate the earth so he's still thinking about the ultra humanite so it's it's on it's on his mind it's on the back burner he's always gonna be thinking about it and then the final panel says meanwhile and the ultra humanite's there he's got a beaker and he's got a flask no he's got a beaker and he's got a bigger, wider beaker, whatever the chemistry name is for that. Mixing beaker. And he says, only one obstacle confronts me. Superman. He must be wiped out. It's a terrific task, but my tremendous brain can devise some way to trick him. So the Ultra-Humanite's gonna trick Superman to defeat him. And that's the end of of Action Comics number 14's Superman story. It's a good story. I love the recurring things of, of Ultra-Humanite and superman still being wanted so random people are just going to attack superman it's a good story and you can't change my mind not that you would try i'm sure you agree it's a good story uh so moving on to the zatara story from this issue the zatara issue from this the zatara story from this issue is of course written by gardner f fox and and drawn by fred b Gardiner, uh and it's called the fountain of youth or as i like to call it Zatara is a dick to indigenous people for no reason. So the story starts out where the last story left off. Zatara is staying at the Carolina plantation of his friends Eleanor and Fred Hodges, the ones with the evil blood relatives that they killed. They bring him to a friend of theirs, Jeb Standish. He's a retired southern industrial leader, likely uh, grew up uh, somewhere that uh, owned slaves because it is the south and it is 1939 and he's an old man so not important to the story just thought i would point it out so he has heard of zatara as a master magician as everyone has of course he's dressed like a weirdo constantly of course he's a master magician and standish wants him to find the fountain of youth Zatara, being a learned man, brings up Ponce de Leon's quest of th- just such a thing in Florida back in the 1400s, 1500s, uh, 16th century, if you will. Actually, I bet it was I bet it was 15th century, wasn't it? No. Who knows? I'm not, that's not my time period. And it's not the time period that we're covering, so it doesn't matter. So, Standish says, no, Ponce de Leon, he's a dummy. That's not where it's at. It is in the ancient inca uh well of Quetzalcoatl i don't know if that is actually ancient in- incan uh, it could be the incas are, are an ancient uh, tribe of people that lived i believe in where modern day chile is chile but so that was that makes the rest of the story a little bit weird because we'll get to it so uh stan just says i'm rich uh zatara you are poor if you do this for me i'll give you a million dollars Because he doesn't want to die. He wants to regain his youth. And with his experience and youth, he'll be the greatest man in the world. Sure. Zatara agrees. He says, I'll I'll go. Uh, He he spends a week to uh, prepare. And then he he boards a ship to South America. And he tells Tong when they landed Rio de Janeiro. So if they're landing in Rio de, de Janeiro, and the ancient Incas are basically on the other side of the continent doesn't seem like a very smart so i think they just used inca for placeholder for vague indigenous tribe that lives in the amazon and i could be completely wrong the Inca empire could have stretched way further than that but i just don't think it did but i could be wrong whatever doesn't matter so but tara informs tong that he needs to find some some indigenous people he calls them uh natives of course to paddle them up the amazon and into the jungle and you know some they, they may be difficult and if they if they are tong says that he'll he'll you know beat them up he'll beat him up that's what tong does uh the native people the indigenous people that they get to uh paddle them up say no it's cursed they don't want to go up there this is part one of zatara being a dick for no reason zatara uses his magic he's a magician he's a magic man to levitate them off the ground to scare them into paddling them up the amazon river they agree at that point, and but at every single turn, they're trying to kill Zatara and Tong because they don't want to do this. Uh, Zatara turns him, you know, replaces where he was sitting with a brick wall, and confuses the guy. Then he walks on water. Then uh, he—they're about to kill Tong, and so he levitates. He like tips the boat upside down. But Tong is smart because because he is he is friends with a white man. So he climbs onto the bottom, which is not the top of the canoe. And the other ones, the other people in the boat are dangling from it because they're not, they're not smart like Tong. Then they're about to go over a waterfall and Zatara levitates the canoes up into the air. And so then they, they decide to just paddle through the air then rather than the the, the river. And then below them, they see the red city, which is apparently where this, The fountain of youth is going to be. Now I have to pause here. So this is why I call this story, or why I said at the beginning of the story that it's just Zatara being a dick to indigenous people uh, for several pages. Zatara is a magician. Zatara knows magic, amazing magic. He can turn people into worms. He can fly. He can turn into a shadow form. Why in the world would he need to hire? indigenous people to paddle him and tong up the river and i say so that he could be a dick to them because the writers of this are like oh won't it be so funny you know zatara being so much better than these non-white people uh he's gonna just kind of pull pranks on them the whole time even though he doesn't need them to get there he could literally just fly he could literally teleport i'm sorry i was just reading this and i was like this entire point part is pointless so, but whatever. Uh, so they get to this red city, and they're immediately attacked because they're, you know, outsiders. They're there for nefarious reasons, and so they're attacked by the warriors of the red city. Uh, the The book does call them red savages. Do you just want to point that in, put that in there? Some just un unhidden racism right there. Uh, Zatara does some magic, turns their spears in the clouds. Tong punches. A huge brute. He punches a huge brute of an Indian is what he's called and beats him because he is, he is, he may be, he may be Indian from India. Uh, he may, you know, speak in this sort of bad English and never wear a shirt and be depicted in such a racist way. But he is, he has accepted white man's culture and he knows that white men are superior. And so that's why he wins. And because he's on the team with Satara and zatara is the protagonist it's just this is all very it's all blatant and it's not even hidden in any sort of way so now they've bested them and they're allowed to enter the area where the the fountain of youth is supposed to be and inside they see the woman who's on the cover uh in the fancy chair it wasn't egyptian it was apparently incan uh, from what i said earlier Zatara says she's dead, and, and she speaks and says she's been dead for thousands of years. She sits in judgment of those who come to get the Fountain of Youth. She lets out snakes. Zatara says these snakes are never never been seen before, but you know who can defeat them? The common mongoose. So these snakes are alien. They're, they're, they're never been seen before, but just a regular mongoose because mongooses are mongoose. Are the enemy of snakes, all snakes apparently. So that's cool. Zatara then does this dumb face to exert tremendous pull uh, on this unseen force, and the unseen force it apparently calls out this little guy from this wall, and his name's Gaius, Gaius, the Ugly, which is not very nice. And he says, "Who has called me from the sh- my home by the shining sea?" And it's Zatara, and Zatara's looking for the Fountain of Youth, and this guy says, do you don't want it? I've been living for hundreds of years. I'm tired. He cannot die. Zatara does some magic to, like, pull him out of this little door. Or actually, I guess it's a full-size door. We find out. And behind it is the Fountain of Youth, and Zatara uses magic to get stairs up there. He didn't need stairs to get up there and then tong and and zatara are in this tunnel that's lighted by veins of radium now if you don't know what radium is it's right there in the name it's a radioactive isotope uh element that at this point in time is apparently valuable they don't realize that it is incredibly dangerous to be around uh and tong and zatara just hanging out they're getting tons of rads being like it's gonna be fallout in here i'm gonna get my rads up gonna get some cool mutations gonna go fight a deathclaw you know normal stuff the tunnel starts to fill with water and zatara being the fast-thinking guy that he is turns into his shadow form goes out and tricks the the indigenous people of the red city into turning off the water or i guess exposing where the crank is and uh, zatara turns it off and flies back to tong he turns tong into a fish after he gets back not before which is weird, unless that was just some editing mistake. But he turns Tong into a big fish, and then Tong's not a big fish anymore. And now they're going down some stairs, and they get to the Fountain of Youth, and Zatara's suspicious, uh, and he and Tong goes and starts to fill up a flask, and Tong is bewitched. That's a good one. Is bewitched by the waters, and he's going to try to drink it, and the waters the waters turn into a face and say, "Do not drink me, or you will become very sick." Uh, tong still tries to drink it but then the water is kind of through some force it's zatara zatara is keeping the water from going in tong's mouth and he comes back and says i didn't drink it master which i hate it when he calls him master and he says don't worry i saved the water for you i didn't drink it and zatara's like i know you didn't drink it Uh, i stopped you from drinking it with magic or whatever and then when they come out the the tribe is again trying like i'm going to Kill you now again, even though you've bested me a bunch of times. Zatara turns them into images, graven images. Uh, he says, But don't worry, they're going to turn back in an hour. I suppose they got some calls in me like, Hey, Zatara killed those dudes when he turned them into paintings. So they put in a little thing saying, They'll turn back in an hour. Then a quick flight home. He's back on the Carolina plantation. He's talking to Fred Hodges. And it turns out that Jeb Standish died two days and a, two, sorry, two weeks and a day ago at 10 o'clock. And Satara's like, oh, that's exactly when I got the waters from the Fountain of Youth." And then he does this big monologue about how no one should live forever. Shut up, Zatara. you don't know. It's probably, gonna, it'd probably be awesome to live forever. So you know, it's clear that by getting the waters for Jeb Standish, that it killed him. The end. Man's hubris has killed him once again. Uh, So that's the end of the Zatara story for issue uh, number 14 of Action Comics. Pretty good. Uh, I mean, again, just like Detective Comics this time, the previous Detective Comics. Uh, One good, one bad. Uh, I like the Superman story, the Zatara story is super racist, and Zatara just being a dick to indigenous people. But, you know, you can't win them all. Uh, So moving on. The next issue we'll be covering is Detective Comics number 29, released June 13th, 1939, with a cover date of July 1939. No debuts in this one, except for a villain that will be in two issues, spoiler alert, uh, but no actual long-term debuts. Batman, Crimson Avenger, the old go-tos of this one. Hopefully the Crimson Avenger one is better than last issue of detective comics so on to the batman story the batman story is called the batman meets dr death uh which very straightforward name he does what he says he kills people you know no beating around the bush for this one and a couple things uh about this so in the in the title of the comic uh of the story there's still a hyphen in batman but throughout the comic but throughout the throughout the story There's no dash in Batman, there's no quotes. Uh, They finally kind of realize that Batman, one word, is just as good as Superman, one word, because Superman doesn't have a hyphen, so it's all coming together. We see this doctor, Dr. Carl Helfern, sitting in his office. Uh, He'll soon be widely known as Dr. Death, it says. Uh, He calls in his uh, large bodyguard, henchman, Jabba, and says that, He's got his master plan already. His 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 death by pollen extract. He's ready to exact his tribute from the wealthy or they'll be killed. But the problem is that a crime like that will cause a lot of, you know, stir. And will garner a lot of attention from the Batman. So, Dr. Death comes up with a plan to trick Batman and trap him. To keep him out of the way. So... Like any good supervillain, he puts a notice in the want ads in the paper, in the daily newspaper. And the next morning, like any good superhero, Bruce Wayne is reading the entire paper front to back, and he sees, he sees in the in the want ads, he sees a notice. Or I guess they're the public notices, not the want ads. Same thing, though, right? Batman, if you go to general post office... Go to general post office. huh? No, not go to the general post office. Go to a general post office. Hmm. And ask for a letter addressed to John Jones. You will find a message of vital importance. So Bruce Wayne goes to the post office and says, do you have a letter addressed to John Jones? Because apparently back in the day, you could just be like, that's me. I'd like that letter, please. But you look a lot like Bruce Wayne. No, this one's, I'm John Jones please do give me the letter so the letter says at 10 p.m tonight in this suite on the 14th floor of of this apartment building there's going to be a murder committed and he this mystery person wants batman to stop him without the police's help so of course batman's down batman is down to clown Uh, bruce wayne returns home and he gets some gadgets for, to go along with his his vigilante costume. This is the first sort of real gadgets that we're seeing out of Batman. And it's exciting because it, it is leading to, to great things to come of the many different gadgets that Batman will be using throughout his tenure. So first he grabs glass pellets of choking gas. that if you break them, obviously it releases choking gas. And then he grabs some suction gloves and knee pads so that he can scale buildings. So that's cool. And then he gets all dressed up in in Batman clothes and gets in his red car and drives to the apartment building. For whatever reason, there's then a little interlude that Batman says that he needs to put his car somewhere else. So he puts it in a construction site. It has no bearing on the story from this point forward, but uh, Bob Kane uh, was like, you know what, I need to put the car somewhere. People are going to be like, where did he put his car? Which, I mean, it's true wouldn't they that'd be like the stupid inane thing that comic book fans would be like where um where did batman put his car in uh, detective comics number 29 and uh, he put it in the construction site so that you know no one would bother it so he lassos up a ways and then when he gets too high to lasso he puts on his suction gloves and his suction knee pads and he climbs up and it says like a gigantic bat which i guess bats do climb stuff but i don't really think of bats as climbers i think of them more as flyers except that's true isn't it like bats don't fly from low places they swoop so they kind of like they need to be up high to then swoop down and get air so i guess yeah that makes sense that they would climb i stand corrected i stand corrected 1939 comic book so he makes it to the penthouse and uh before going in he gives himself uh kind of an out he ties his rope off to a sort of a decorative uh piece of corner work so he can have a quick escape if he needs. And he steps inside the apartment. And the lights come on. And inside are two thugs. They've got guns. And they're going to shoot him. But wait. Batman tackles uh, some art. And topples it over on top of them. And then beats him up. And he's got them all kind of knocked out on the floor. And he says, who sent you? He probably says it in that Christian Bale-like deep voice. Who sent you? You know, like that. I don't think that was a good Christian Bale, Batman. But I'm not a i'm not a batman impersonator and they said we can't tell you he'd kill us uh and then but then batman does something crazy he says your choice gentlemen tell me or i'll kill you this batman i don't know he's got a lot of he's bloodthirsty he wants to do a murder but before he can do that uh jabba comes in dr death's henchman bodyguard and says dr death sends his regards which is such a great line and then he shoots batman in the shoulder not a kill shot not in the head not in the heart in the shoulder uh batman takes out one of his glass pellets of choking gas and throws it at java and then the gas comes out and java says i'm choking so the gas is working then batman jumps to the window And then jumps over the edge of the building. And they're all like, what? He jumped off the building? That's crazy. But what they don't know is there's a rope underneath there. And he's all good. Uh, Then he gets his suction cups back down to his car that was conveniently parked in the construction site. It doesn't say that. But we all know that's where it was parked. And he patches himself up. And then he calls the newspaper. Because that's the next high priority thing on his list. And he puts a public notice as Batman. He says, I accept your challenge, Dr. Death the batman to be like ha ha i'm alive and then he goes see and goes and sees the family doctor and we all know who the family doctor is right leslie thompkins nope just kidding it's some blonde guy who doesn't have a name and so batman has given the excuse or sorry he's bruce wayne at this point bruce wayne is giving the excuse to the doctor that he accidentally shot himself but the doctor's like you don't have any powder marks on your flesh and bruce is like i do funny things sometimes i'll tell you about them someday and then he leaves. And then in the next morning, Doctor Death is kind of berating his goons, saying, "You fools, you bunglers, you couldn't stop Batman." And then after that's done, he has Jabba come into his workshop, into his laboratory, and he says he wants to have Jabba kill a guy with the with the death pollen, um, because he hasn't paid Doctor Death his tribute to stop him from killing him. And Jabba has been immunized to the death pollen so it won't affect him. So Jabba wearing a big a big cloak, just walking down the street. And Bruce Wayne, driving in his car, just happens to see him and says, oh, I better follow him. He sees Jabba use this sort of like blow gun, kind of spray can thing to spray this pollen at this bespectacled man and bruce wayne comes up behind him and covers his mouth with claws and says don't breathe or you're dead which sounds very scary if i was that bespectacled man i'd be like oh my gosh i'm gonna die then bruce wayne says don't worry but don't ask me any questions i don't have any time and then he runs away and then he follows jabba to dr death's house and then batman is there the next night he climbs over the wall climbs up uh onto the second floor cuts open a hole in the window and sneaks inside he uses a lasso to uh jerk jabba by the neck uh from from the table that he and dr death are standing by which like ouch i hope that i mean i hope, I hope he's okay dr death is scared of course batman says good evening doctor but it won't be after i'm through with you which is like great good job good banter dr death pulls an ultra humanite and drops through a quick closing door in the floor But Batman is better than Superman and is fast enough to get through it before it closes. He lands on a mattress, all nice and soft, and then follows Dr. Death down the hall into a secret laboratory. Wait a minute, is that the same laboratory? Oh, that's so weird. So, okay, I didn't notice this when I was reading it the first time, but Batman and Dr. Death are in the laboratory. And and Batman grabs Java by the neck with some rope, okay, and he's on the ground presumably. Then they go down through a hole, and then they run around some hallways, and then they go through a door into a laboratory, and there's Jabba on the ground. So did they just go in a circle? What a weird, what a weird, weird escape route. I escaped back into the place I was escaping from. Oh, that's weird. I wonder if that's just an oversight, because that doesn't make any sense. It's weird. Okay, I did not notice that. But then uh, Batman grabs a fire extinguisher. And Dr. Death grabs um, a spooky beaker. And Batman chucks the fire extinguisher at Dr. Death. And Dr. Death drops the beaker. And the entire lab starts on fire. And Batman is then... He says, you are, you are a poor fool. You've gone mad. To Dr. Death. And, he, and then he says death to Dr. Death. Which, like, whoa, Batman. Pretty cold-hearted. He's just standing there watching the flames burn... Dr. Death's body. It's like, wow, okay. Okay, Firefly, a, a future Batman villain. Come on, weirdo. So that's the end. Uh, and I will spoiler alert, since it's in this episode, Dr. Death returns next issue. So uh, if you thought you were done with Dr. Death, you're wrong, because he's he's back. And he's He's ready for more death. So yeah, so that is the Batman story from Detective Comics number 29. Okay, moving on to the Crimson Avenger story in, in Detective Comics number 29. It starts off with a ransom, uh, a kidnapping, uh, and, and the kidnappers picking up a, a ransom as a, a shadowy form takes a package from a rule mail, mailbox, and a heavy car speeds away into the night. So the, we, are, we are in media res. Uh, there's a wealthy person of some kind. It's not mentioned is kidnapped and then ransomed and then the rants the kidnappers get the ransom and it's good job you did a good crime uh congratulations we then cut to the globe offices where lee travis the crimson avenger is the editor and someone comes in someone who works at the paper and says mr travis the kidnappers returned mcneil who was apparently the kidnapping victim to his home safe and sound and then travis gets a little bit angry at him he says i know hank i'm covering this one myself with a big exclamation point it's like wow, Travis. Okay, geez, didn't didn't know this was such like such a touchy subject. Rich people being kidnapped. I know you are a rich person yourself, so uh, I guess that would make sense, you know. Uh, we are then told about uh, where this the kidnapping victim McNeil was held. He was blindfolded. He, somehow, he, he must be one of those people like Sherlock Holmes or something that can count. You know, that can time, distance, while being blindfolded. A masterful, a masterful man in this sense, because he has it pretty accurate. About 50 miles from here, from the city, whatever city they're in, uh, is where he was held. Five men and a girl. So six six members in this kidnapping squad. Although later on, there's only five, so I don't know what happens to the sixth one. It's never mentioned. Uh, he notices some peculiar things about... Uh, the place where he was held. Lock on the front gate. Somehow he knows it must be jingling of chains, I guess. Uh, second porch step was loose. So, okay. That one's pretty obvious. He's walked up the steps. Water pump in the back squeaked. Okay. That all makes sense. P- the police chief asks Travis not to print anything until he, you know, gives him the word, until he's got it all, you know, handled, because you don't want to give the kidnappers forewarning that the police are onto them and they know where their hideout is. Travis is like, of course, but uh, he's going to take things into his own hands of course because he is the crimson avenger but he's not gonna put on his crimson avenger disguise to to find this place he's gonna go on a little vacation quote unquote uh, and he's going to hunt the kidnappers uh, so he disguises himself as a peddler uh, back in the day people would just drive from house to house and try to sell things so he's got his you know peddler vehicle he's driving he's got he's he looks unshaven he's wearing a, a kind of a a hat He looks kind of rough. And he comes upon this farmhouse. He's apparently checked. Uh, He goes from farm to farm, so he's checked other farms. And he finally comes to this one farm with the chain on the front gate. He's like, okay, here we go, that's step one. He walks onto the farm and there's a seedy gentleman there and he wants to know why he's there. Travis says, oh, I'm selling farm equipment. Do you want anything? No, I don't have any money, says the guy. His wife comes out. Travis says, hey, would you like to buy some curtains? I've got some nice fabric. She says, yeah, I've got my own money that the old man hasn't gotten from me yet. And inside the farmhouse are the kidnappers. So Travis has done a good job of finding the kidnappers. Uh, You would think the policeman would have thought to go farm to farm, checking, you know, the, the criteria that McNeil said was where he was kidnapped but the police i guess are slow and uh they're not the crimson avengers so they're not you know they're not on it they're not on top of the game travis goes inside with the couple uh to to see how the curtains look on the window and he notices a a, a lit cigar and a very expensive cigar on a plate on the table he sees a shoe sticking out from one of the curtains that are already there not the curtains that he's hanging up and he steps on it and out comes a guy and he's about to punch him because he's like aha one of the kidnappers but another one of the kidnappers has a gun and stops travis from punching this guy whose name is Jaime, which is quite the name h-y-m-i-e probably a nickname right and uh the woman of the the female kidnapper she's whose name is lou she says, putting the B on Jaime, which I don't know what that means. That's some old timey slang. I don't, B, maybe beat, beat down, putting the beat down on Jaime. I don't know. So I think he's a fed. And what do you do with feds when you're a kidnapper and you find them? You tie them up and burn down the house. So like usual, Travis is kidnapped. He can't go a single issue without being kidnapped. Got kidnapped last episode or last issue. Probably got kidnapped this issue before. I can't remember, but he gets kidnapped a lot. Uh, It's like his one trick. Be kidnapped, and then they realize, oh no, it's the Crimson Avenger, and he gets out. So they light this farmhouse on fire, uh, and they drive away in this big limousine. Luckily, the Crimson Avenger's sidekick, Wing, was waiting out in the car, uh, and he was keeping an eye on the place. So he sees this big limousine drive by, and and, uh, Lee Travis is not in there. So he must be inside the house. He, Wing, runs inside the house and gets Travis out, Uh, and then we see this couple whose house this was, and... (laughs) They say, "There goes our house." Jed, them crooks says says the woman, and uh, they didn't leave any money for them. Uh, maybe you shouldn't allow criminals to use your house as their base of operations or their, I guess, staging ground for their kidnappings. It doesn't really make any sense financially or just in general. So, I guess you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Travis then turns into turns into puts his crimson avenger uh disguise on and says to the car so they must have driven two separate cars uh, wing and and travis one being the peddler vehicle and one being the souped up crimson avenger car and i will say that i think this is maybe the first time that we're getting a really clear picture of it in the daylight of this uh, crimson avenger car and it is i will say it looks souped up uh it's got a nice grill on the front it's a, kind of a studebaker looking uh old-timey vehicle but it's got these like cool like, uh, pipes on the outside, which was like, okay, all right, here we go. You can tell it's fast. It's got this stuff on the outside. It doesn't look like a normal car. So he's chasing after these kidnappers, and we do see in the car only five, so I don't know why he said six, this McNeil guy. Um, maybe he was just confused. He was, he was probably blindfolded the whole time, so maybe, you know, the voices all kind of... He couldn't count them properly. So there's only five, but they stop, and two of them get out to kind of... I guess separate so they don't all get caught if that's the thing. they say let's see, they say, hey, there's some mug following us. Okay, Lou, we'll stop around this bend and then in that case Joe and I will get off here and we'll all meet at the hideout tomorrow. So I guess separate, you know, divide divide forces, not to like ambush the guy following them, but just to separate for safety. Which makes sense. That's smart. So Lou and Joe, the two uh, two kidnappers that get out, they hide in the bushes, and the Crimson drives by them, doesn't see them. The Crimson pulls up alongside the kidnapper's car and jumps from one car to the other, and he says, you know, put, stop, pull over. They say no, and they say, "Hi, me get him, um, uh, but the Crimson pulls out his gas gun, and it's actually a gas gun this time, not just a regular gun, and, and, he's, and he shoots gas into the car and knocks him out, and then uh, jumps off as they drive off a cliff, so... The Crimson does a triple murder right there. I I guess I don't know in court what that would be considered. It was with intent to gas them and knock them out. Did he intend for the car to drive over the cliff? If he didn't intend for the car to drive over the cliff, I suppose it would probably be manslaughter. But it seems pretty deliberate that he wanted them to get hurt in some way. So the Crimson's a murderer. But we already knew that. He murdered a guy last issue. So Uh, he then meets back up with uh, Wing and circles back onto a ledge above joe and lou the two kidnappers who got out he jumps down and presumably captures them we don't see he calls the cops tells them where they're at and that is the end of this issue uh the issue ends it's kind of it's weird the the issue ends with the image of a of a balding man in glasses i don't know who that is who that's supposed to be but that's just the image we have i thought it was kind of weird and a little bit funny for there to be this random guy in the last panel that says don't miss the next exciting chapter in the career of the crimson avenger but that's that that's that story from this issue a much more coherent story than the last one um it's a lot more they're showing and not telling for a lot of this whereas last uh issue last story was a lot of telling not showing which kind of made the story incoherent but yeah, I say overall a pretty good, pretty good classic Crimson Avenger story. He gets captured, he shoots someone with a gas gun. He gets the upper hand on criminals. That's the Crimson Avenger. So all right, moving on. We now come to uh, Adventure Comics number 40, our first instance of Adventure Comics number 40 that we've covered in this show. Obviously, there were 39 other issues of Adventure Comics, but those don't matter because they don't have any characters that pertain to the DC Comics superhero multiverse. So, and this one is the first or second, depending on how you want to look at continuity and things, uh, His it's likely his first in-universe appearance, but it's his second published appearance, because as you know from last episode, the Sandman, Wesley Dodds, appeared in New York World's Fair comic number one. Adventure Comics number 40 is often cited as his first in-universe appearance um, happening in before the new york world's fair comic but being published after due to things about with publishing and such uh so this uh, this uh issue adventure comics number 40 was released june 15th 1939 with a cover date of july 1939. now sandman is the only story in here that we're going to cover it's an anthology series just like detective comics and action comics so sandman this this first issue is written by if you look at the actual comic larry dean but i did a little digging because i was pretty sure that that's not right and it's not so the sandman is written by gardner fox a very famous comic book creator he later creates the flash and hawkman and stuff like that Uh, and artist bert christman which i believe is also the artist involved with the crimson avenger no 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 no, it's not sorry that's not that was something else it's the Sandman. He, he does art for the Sandman. i'm pretty sure that's what i'm thinking of but they they published this first issue and i think maybe another issue uh story under the pseudonym larry dean for whatever reason i don't know why but getting into this story this story is titled uh the tarantula strikes Uh, so the tarantula is a bad guy so we we come in in media res like we so often do in these comics sorry if i'm saying in media res too much it's a fun phrase to say try it try it now in media res that's fun Uh, A wealthy socialite, uh, Vivian Dale, has been kidnapped by someone known as the Tarantula, uh, and he's ransoming her for $500,000. Now, uh, we, we see this scene of Wesley Dodds and this old man, I don't know if we know his name, if we ever hear his name, Tom. His name is just simply Tom. They're having a conversation about how how the tarantula did what he did he gave the police an hour warning that he was going to kidnap vivian dale and they still couldn't do it and wesley dodds to to the question of how he did it he says the tarantula has ability tom's ability he's got magic how could he do this you know there was police all around her house and wesley says her house is old and big. Uh, It'd be quite simple to to sneak around. He's implying that there are secret passageways uh, in, in this old house as there so often are in old houses. Tom is not having it. He says, stop stop speaking riddles, Wesley. I want help. Someone needs to stop this guy from doing this thing. The wealthy are sensitive and they're scared. And we wouldn't want the wealthy to be scared um, in any way. We want them to be very safe so that they can continue to make money while everyone else is poor. But uh, Tom says, what we need is a, a master sleuth. You know, like the Sandman. So the Sandman already exists in this universe. He is. This is not an origin story so much as it is a first appearance in a comic. Perhaps later on we'll see the the origin of the Sandman. Tom says he's a brilliant. He's a brilliant mind. He solved all those cases with his mystery weapon uh, and his light sprinkling of sand that he puts next to all of the people he knocks out with this with this weapon. And Wesley says maybe he does know. And Tom is like, poppycock. He actually says, bosh, which is apparently a phrase meaning, oh, poppycock. And so he's like, if he had known, he would have done something. And he says, well, goodbye, Wesley. So Tom leaves. And Wesley spends the rest of his evening, you know, sitting in his chair in his smoking jacket. He's still wearing, of course, a button-down shirt and a tie as wealthy the wealthy do in this day and age when they're sitting at home. Uh, And then he says to his butler, he says, good night. And then he goes to his room and he puts a little doll in his bed. (laughs) He puts a tiny little doll in his bed and says, good night, Wesley Dodds. Sleep tight to the doll that he's put in his bed. And then he opens up a secret passageway and uh, goes through it, and inside he puts on a gas mask, makes up some secret chemicals for a strange gun, and then he says he dons all black apparel. But due to coloring of comics and stuff, his appearance does not look black at all he's wearing an orange suit yellow gloves his mask his gas mask is yellow his hat is green his cloak is purple it's quite the look it looks terrible if someone were to wear that in real life they would look ridiculous the colors are all bad but whatever he's wearing black okay just use your imagination nick use your imagination that he's wearing all black okay i will so one hour later he slips through the police web and enters vivian dale's home and inside the police have everyone who was there the night that Vivian Dale was kidnapped they're all suspects Mr. Cressart says see here captain I won't stand for this treatment and the police chief says sorry you'll have to because I'm in charge now go to your rooms and lock the doors and stay there and the police say that they're expecting a message from the tarantula because that's apparently what he does it's what he did last time he gives them a message and then still does the crime anyways without them being able to stop them The Sandman sneaks around to another room in the house and waits silently within it. Uh, I believe it is Vivian Dale's room. Uh, And he waits and lucky for him, a mirror opens and the tarantula, which is a man in a dark, what I would call black in comics, mask and cape and and sneaks out through the door uh, of this room. The Sandman then checks the mirror and finds a catch and it swings open and he follows this tunnel that is revealed down and he finds Vivian Dale being held captive and being guarded by just some guy in a suit. The Sandman uses uh, his special gun and gasses the room and knocks them I guess both out. He can't not knock Vivian Dale out because she has to breathe as well. Uh, With a sweet-smelling gas from his gun uh, he says a weird thing about the sands of deep sleep fill his eyes and Vivian's too. not to deal with the tarantula himself. He's saying that to himself. Obviously, he's also narrating, but i just like to imagine him just saying, like, the sands of deep sleep fill his eyes. Like, good job, Sandman. Very on brand, very sticking with the motif. He then sneaks around this tunnel some more, and he sees that, you know, he can see into other rooms, and there's other doorways of this secret passage. He learns that the police have found a note from the tarantula. And then the Sandman sneaks into uh, an empty guest room, uh, and he finds Mr. Chrysart's cane on a on a chair. Uh, Meanwhile, the tarantula has found his guard for Vivian asleep, and also Vivian asleep. And he sees sprinkled sand everywhere, which means he knows the Sandman is here. Very obsessive of the Sandman to do that for every single one not even not just the ones like the poetic justice ones at the end where he you know allows the police to find his knocked out criminals so the tarantula sneaks back follows some sort of trail and goes through the door into mr chrasart's room and he sees a figure bent over a desk it's got a hat on it's wearing a cloak it's got to be the sandman he shoots him with a gun a real gun uh but what it wasn't the Sandman. It was a ruse, and behind the tarantula is the actual Sandman, without his hat or his cape, and he gases the tarantula and knocks him out. He finds out that it is Mr. Kazart underneath the guise of the tarantula. He then, you know, ties him up uh, with Miss uh, in, in Vivian Dale's room, along with the guard, and and rests Vivian Dale also in that room. The police find them the next morning. And then also the next morning, Tom is back at Wesley Dodd's house. And he says, it's unbelievable. It's like the Sandman heard my my pleas for him to help. And Wesley Dodd's is like, remarkable, Tom. That's remarkable. And that's the end. Good. Hey, good story. A good story for the kind of uh, character that the Sandman is. Very similar, obviously, to the Crimson Avenger, who also uses a gas gun. But I think, for whatever reason, better. I don't know if that's just because Gardner Fox is a better writer. That's likely it. Uh, he, I mean, he he does go on to do many things in the comic book industry, so that's not crazy. Uh, the mythos of the Sandman is also quite good. The the sand, the the gas mask. He's a much more iconic, distinct character than the Crimson is who just simply wears a red cloak and a regular Domino-style mask and hat. So I think it's a pretty good first installment of The Sandman. So that's Adventure Comics number 40. Just one story, just cut and dry like that. So moving on. The next issue we'll be covering is Action Comics number 15 with a release date of June 29th, 1939 and a cover date of August 1939. Uh, So this one, just as usual, has a Superman story and a Zatara story. No debuts in this one. No Ultra-Humanite in this one. Sorry, folks. It was a fun run, two issues in a row, Ultra-Humanite. But he's still out there. He could come back at any time. But this one has more to do with Clark Kent trying to figure out how to save Kid Town. And if you don't know what Kid Town is, that's fine. Because it's never been mentioned before until this moment. So, uh, George Taylor. Uh, sends Clark Kent they must have they must have thought that there wasn't enough Clark Kent in the last episode which their last episode last issue because there wasn't uh, there was one panel of Clark Kent and the rest was Superman uh, so this one's got a lot of Clark Kent doing his reporter job George Taylor sends uh, Clark Kent out to interview the the man in charge and responsible for Kid Town and Kidtown is is like a sort of rehabilitation place for underprivileged youth who were maybe on a path that's not great a path of crime if you will uh, which is basically what it says it's it's a place for them to to rehabilitate themselves you know learn skills get themselves on the right path and not uh, lead a life of crime and that's you know that's fine i'm good with that it's a good it's a good service but the problem is is that takes money and people don't like to give money to places apparently it's true A lot of places like this have a tough time making ends meet. This one is a little bit um, insane, though, because this place needs $2 million. And this is $2 million in 1939, which is like, I don't know what inflation is, but insane. It's an insane amount of money. I don't know what kind of mismanagement of funds this place is doing, but $2 million in 1939 money is, is a lot. So they'll face closure if they don't come up with $2 million to, I guess, pay the mortgage. I don't know. I don't think this was well thought out because that's a lot of money. And I know I've already said that, but it's a lot of money. But Clark, being the guy that he is, puts that on his shoulders without telling the guy in charge he's going to come up with the $2 million. He has to raise it in two weeks, which, again, just insane mismanagement by the people in charge of this place. The overhead must be insane. I don't know. It's it's fishy, but. Clark Kent remembers that he's actually a millionaire. If you remember, he salvaged a million dollars by basically manipulating the stock of that oil place and kind of forcing the guys in charge to pay him a million dollars, which was, I guess, illegal by him. But it was the stock market, so I don't care. So he has a million dollars already, so he just needs to get a million more. Easy peasy in 1939, right? It's chump change, is what it is. So... Uh, clark's walking around trying to think of ideas of how to get a million dollars in two weeks and he's walking by a bank and that bank's being robbed and the ba- the bandits are rushing out of the bank and they bump into clark kent they shoot him it bounces off and then he throws them around like it's nothing this is apparently suspicious to no one because he is paid by the bank manager three thousand dollars and he gets a reward for capturing these wanted characters he gets paid two thousand dollars so he's got five thousand dollars he's so close he's only got nine hundred ninety five thousand dollars more to go i'll come back to this in a second because the next part of the story they're connected and it it makes me shake my head clark kent he's got five thousand dollars he's gotta find nine hundred ninety five thousand more he's walking around the park and uh through a quirk of fate, I guess, an odd little man turns the corner and is walking the same direction as Clark. Isn't that weird? A guy walking behind another guy, just because. It that never happens, not every day to millions and millions of people. So they're both thinking. Clark's like, I gotta find more of this money, and this guy's thinking, I have so much money and I don't know what to do with it, and I'm bored by existence. Um, cry me a river, guy. But just at that instance, a car whose delicate mechanism has gone haywire. Uh, runs almost runs over Clark and this guy and hits a tree and the tree topples over onto the to the strange man who's bored by existence and has too much money so this is the part that I mentioned that I was going to go back to the other the earlier part so Clark is like oh no I can't let him die but if I display super strength it might give away my true identity as Superman he didn't say jack about that when the bank robbers shot him and it bounced right off And then he threw them around like they were nothing. He was literally described, he threw them around like he was a juggler. And they were the things he was juggling. Like, just have some continuity. Just have some consistency in what clark will do to not have his identity revealed because like getting because those those bank robbers they now know something's up with clark kent they don't know who clark kent is and this guy also doesn't know who clark kent is there's nobody around it would have been more likely that he would have been discovered at the bank than here in the park with a, a guy and maybe the guy in the car that's two people whatever it just made me it made me kind of like shake my head while i was reading this so he lifts the tree off of the guy and the guy's like oh thank you so much um i, I don't want to die i guess i do want to live even though i find existence to be incredibly boring and then he gives clark ten thousand dollars because he has so much money so now all clark needs is nine hundred and eighty five thousand dollars more uh, but where is he going to find that you ask well it's pretty obvious oh it's not obvious well let me tell you uh he goes back to his job at the the daily star and he says he's got that Kid Town article all done. He's sending it over to the rewrite man, I guess, to, to reword things because reporters are bad at words. And so then George Taylor then sends Clark over to interview Warren Kenyon, uh, a well-known explorer, with no, with no guidance of what to, what, what to ask Warren Kenyon. Because the first question that Clark asks is, have you anything of interest to announce? It's like, okay, so you've gone all the way to this hotel and you've got this interview all set up, but you don't have any questions. You're just like, hey, anything anything cool? Anything up? And luckily for Clark, Warren Kenyon does. He just found this big treasure. Woohoo, that's great. And then Clark asks him, like, hey, what's, a, what's it take to be a treasure hunter? And Warren Kenyon's like, oh, you know, it's, you gotta find the stuff but every every treasure hunter has this same map wow okay why is it like the first thing you get when you become a treasure hunter it's like welcome to the treasure hunter club here's this special map that every one of us gets uh none of us have ever completed the map because it is of this uh spanish galleon that sunk uh it, had a, it has a million worth million dollars worth of gold <gasps> what a lucky coincidence But it's impossible to blast through the gold because it's so embedded in Coral. You know Coral, the thing that's alive that could easily be blasted through. Don't question it. Don't question the comic book logic. Coral is impossible to bust through. So Clark gets an idea. He's going to bust through. But he's going to, he does it. just like with the last Zatara story, this one also is like, this part is pointless. So just, it's just, it's there for Plot. Because otherwise this story would be about eight pages long. Um, But in my mind, if you have to add superfluous things in order to make the plot work, then it's a bad plot and you should come up with something else. Because here's the thing. Clark could just become Superman, fly, jump over, swim, something. Superman can run super fast. He can swim super fast. He can jump super far. Just go there, bust into the galley and get the stuff. But no, no, can't do that because we have to have some stupid plot. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm getting heated over this. Clark comes back with the story to to George Taylor and then says, hey, I want two weeks off. And George Taylor's like, sure, that's fine. Yep, go right ahead. Okay. Uh, The story's printed in in the newspaper. Fabulous treasure awaits seekers, claims Warren Kenyon explorer by Clark Kent. And who sees this but Big Boy Cheney, whoever that is, a ruthless gang leader. And he's like, treasure, eh? Ho ho, here we go. And then another gang, apparently led by a name a man named Marchetti, is like, Okay, here we go. Treasure. But he's got a different strategy. He's gonna go and have a man, Muggsy, follow or sorry, not follow, get the dope, which is information on clark kent the reporter who wrote the story uh and mugsy does and he finds out that clark is leaving for two weeks and then he follows clark to uh, a shipping office where clark is is renting a huge ship how much money do you make clark you can rent a and i'm not talking like oh it's a boat no this is a ship this is a ship it has a diving bell it needs a crew how much money does Clark make? I know he made that million, but that million is for kid town. And I guess maybe he's going to use part of the million and hopefully there's more down there to recoup, whatever. It doesn't make any sense. So Muggsy goes back to Marchetti and Marchetti's like, all right, I've got it. We're going to be his crew. So they go down to the docks and they beat up everybody else who's trying to get a job on the dragon, which is the name of the ship that Clark has rented. Uh, Clark doesn't see any of this. And he he says, you guys will do. Marchetti's gang and they're his crew, and they they ship on out there, they sail on out there, and but while this is happening, Big Boy Cheney, his group, uh, steals a government submarine, and they're also going there. So these two different parties are headed for the same the same point, and they get there, and Clark gets into this diving bell, which is, if you don't know, is a um, sphere with a window, an observation window that brings you down to the bottom of the ocean or however far down you want to go it's got air all that kind of stuff Uh, i don't know if it has an entrance and an exit you would think it would have to but who knows it's 1939 technology clark goes down there and he finds the galleon and he radios up and says he's found it and uh, marchetti and his gang they cut the airlines to kill clark okay and then they bring the diving bell back up so that they can go down there and get the gold and stuff and this is the part I don't understand about this map and why every treasure hunter has it but none of them have been able to get it why do you have to blow it out like why do you have to explode it why don't you just go down there in scuba gear and get, and get it out which is, which is normally how treasure hunting works anyways you don't blow up the ship and then bring it to the surface you go down there in scuba gear and you get the treasure out that way uh, again the plot doesn't make any sense because it's bad okay Um, Sorry, Jerry and Joe, Uh, it's a bad plot, and I'm not ashamed to say that. So they cut the lines, the airlines, to kill Clark, and they bring the diving bell up, and he's not in there because he's busted through the bottom. And you may be asking yourself, wouldn't that also reveal the fact that he's Superman? Yes, obviously it would, but Clark doesn't care. Clark picks and chooses when he thinks that his identity will be exposed. If he doesn't think about it, then there's no chance of it being exposed. That's the the psychological, the mental dissonance that the other people in this comic have to have. If Clark doesn't think about his identity being revealed, then they can't even think twice about him being Superman. So he busts through the bottom before they bring it up to the surface. And he takes off his clothes so that he's Superman now for whatever reason. His clothes are just floating around the ocean. Whatever. This com- this story is making me mad if you can't notice. <sighs> so he's swimming over to the galleon, and then he's attacked by sharks. He beats the sharks up, obviously, because they can't do anything to him. And then he kind of, he rips through the coral no problem, but dynamite can't, and uh, busts through the wall of the galleon. He sees some dead Spaniards, and he finds the gold. But what's this? The, the, the submarine with Big Boy Cheney's group in it also comes upon the galleon. And three of them get in scuba gear. <gasps> Whoa, in scuba gear. It's weird that treasure hunters didn't think about that, but criminals did think about that. They're just going to walk into the ship in scuba gear. So they walk in, but there's this, uh, but Superman has dressed up as a Spanish uh, sailor from back in the day and pretends to be a ghost and scares them back to the submarine. And he thinks it's pretty funny because Superman's a real prankster. So the guys get back on the ship or back on the submarine and they're like, there's a ghost down there and he's coming after us. And and Big Boy Chang is like, you're insane. Uh, Get back out there, Uh, but he looks through it and then he sees Superman coming towards him. He's like, "Oh gosh, you're right." So they try to leave, but Superman rips the propeller off of a government submarine because he's also a criminal, uh, and then throws the submarine up to the surface. Uh, I don't understand the mechanics of that, but uh, because I feel like there'd be some sort of pressurization, whatever. It's a comic book, Uh, and he happens to throw it up right next to a battleship that was looking for the submarine. Lucky, lucky him. So then Superman puts back on his Clark Kent clothes and comes to the surface and his crew is shocked that he's alive. He shouldn't be, okay? The pressure down there would kill him. Well, no, it wouldn't because you can scuba dive that depth, I guess. So it must not be super deep because otherwise the pressure would kill people if outside of a pressurized cabin. Uh, And they, they they bring the treasure up and Clark discovers that the airlines were cut to the thing even though he busted through it anyway, so it doesn't matter. Uh, then the crew decides they're going to kill him because they already tried to kill him once, so they're going to try to kill him again. They try to stab him. The knife breaks. I guess that wouldn't reveal that he's Superman. He beats him up. He comes back to shore. He gets them arrested for mutiny. It's revealed that Kid Town got an anonymous $2 million donation, and that's the end. It makes This, it, this story makes me super angry. For Really, it shouldn't, but I'm just like it's just like the last sitar story like i said superman could have just swam out there gone down carried the the treasure up okay maybe made multiple trips and there would be there's there's no reason he could have you know what you know what the story could have still worked if superman is just gonna swim out there okay and then big bob big boy cheney's gang still still the submarine and then you have Marchetti's gang also try to steal the ship if you want two different parties coming after Superman, okay? And then that, the same exact thing happens. You know, you could scare them off with the ghost story, and then instead of all of this pointless stuff that leaves a paper trail, it leaves a paper trail back to Clark. So, like, it, it could be easily revealed that, like, it, how is that not a story that uh, an amateur treasure hunter finds and uncovers this this treasure off of a spanish galleon that you know professional treasure hunters have been trying to get at for years they all have this special map how is it not a story it's just it's a bad plot and i understand it's 1939 comics and so like you kind of have to suspend suspend your disbelief but there comes a point where it doesn't make sense and they are there's specifically ignoring things Because they choose to. Because if, if they don't ignore these things, then the story doesn't work. And that makes me angry. Because you don't have to do that. Just write a better plot. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. That's the Superman story from Action Comics number 15. Moving on to Zatara. Alrighty, the Zatara story, this issue is called Zatara, the Master Magician. And the Ice Menace. So it starts off with uh, New York City. Uh, The harbor is flooding. And then the water continues to rise, and it continues to rise. And Zatara is there in New York, of course, because he's a traveling man. He decides to go to the police to see what's up. He flies over to the police station and speaks with the police commissioner. Uh, The police commissioner says, oh, the water just keeps rising and rising and rising. We don't know what's up. Uh, Everyone's worried. Panic is starting. And the president, who looks a lot like FDR, I presume he is FDR since it's 1939, uh, he says, don't panic, we'll figure it out. Zatara and the editor of the Daily Press go to this meeting of scientists. The scientists think that Zatara is a, is a flim-flam man, a charlatan, because they think science is better than magic. Zatara shows that he is actually magic by almost killing a guy, by drowning him in a big, big fish bowl of water. I don't know why that's what he had to do, but Zatara is a psychopath and will kill you at the drop of a hat. Uh, he then explains that uh, the the reason that the water is, is rising is because someone is melting the ice, the icebergs, uh, the ice caps of of north of the North Pole and South Pole. Uh, they ask about who, who could be doing this, and this guy with crazy hair looks kind of like Eisen, Eisenstein, Einstein. Say this man, Berhener could be the guy who's doing it, so Zatara drives out there. And then there's this pointless scene where there's an electric fence and Tong uh, being Tong and um, being there specifically just to be a minority who is not as smart as Zatara, touches the electric fence, and he says, Ow, it hurts me, master. And he's scared of lights. But Zatara's so smart, and so Zatara does some magic and puts the tri- puts the... Uh, house on railroad tracks and brings it forward. I don't know why he didn't just disappear the fence, whatever. And then they go inside. They find Berhener's laboratory and they find this gun and Tong being there to be dumb. Touches it and blasts a hole in the wall and Zatara's like, oh, this must be some sort of machine to heat up the thing to heat up the ice caps and stuff so he uses his spirit form and travels to uh the einstein looking guy stevenson is what his name is um and asks him if this could be the device that's melting the icebergs and he says yes perhenner has used a modification of the ultra status ray and caused an instantaneous heat ray to result and he's he's like wow marvelous (laughs) and then stevenson wakes up in his bed and thinks it's all just a dream but it wasn't a dream it was zatara so zatara touches the machine and establishes a psychic connection with Berhener to find out where he is and he finds him in a snowy uh cabin in the north we cut to Berhener, and he looks like an evil uh scientist um he looks really gross Uh, and he sends out an ultimatum to all the world's governments to each pay him a million dollars and all the world governments are like, oh gosh, oh no, we have to do this. And then just for literally no one's, no one, no one can see this because it's just Brehenner there and Zatara's spirit form. So this is specifically just to, I guess, show us, the audience, because Brehenner specifically says, "...a little taste of my machine here, and the ice weeps, futile tears." And Zatara says, I hope you give a demonstration, but mostly to himself because he's in spirit form. Uh, And so then Brehenner shoots it off and melts the ice cap almost instantaneously for no reason. Back to Brehenner's house in Montauk where he has another ray. Like, I don't know why he didn't just, why he made two and left one at his house to be found. It's, again, bad plot, bad plotting, you know? Zatara turns Tong into a snow eagle and himself into a piece of paper. I don't know why he doesn't just teleport or fly them there. I don't know Uh, they almost get shot by a hunter but Zatara melts the guy's gun and then they're there at the snowy cabin Tong is cold he says me cold master and uh, Zatara gives him a big fur coat to keep him warm the water is still rising incredibly fast in New York we see and then we're back at the snowy cabin Zatara finds that uh is not in the cabin because he's out with the ray we know this Uh, I don't know why they even checked the cabin Uh, Brehenner tries to shoot Zatara and Tong with the heat ray once he discovers that they are on his island. Zatara does some magic and uh, creates large icebergs with mouths and um, sentience, and they eat Brehenner encased living in a block of ice. He's not alive. He's definitely dead. You cannot get frozen in a block of ice and still be alive. So Zatara does another murder, Uh, destroys the heat ray by just putting it in the ocean yeah there's definitely nothing toxic in there that would be bad for the ocean life and then he's rewarded with the million dollars that the united states was going to pay to brenner and he gets a medal and zatara does it good job zatara it's a fine story it's a little bit there's a lot of build-up for not a very big payoff because there's like really nothing like it's just zatara goes and does magic and this human scientist is no match for his magic and that's it's not it's not a great payoff but that's it's it, Zatara stories are real hit or miss. But yeah, that is Action Comics number 15, an okay issue. Uh, I have a lot of problems with both of the plots in there, as I've said. So maybe not an okay issue, maybe a pretty a pretty lackluster issue. You know, I don't have to I don't have to pull my punches here. Everyone who's written these are dead. I think it's not like they can come at me. Uh, but yeah, that is where we're going to end it for this week. I was going to do uh, Detective Comics number 30, but uh, if this episode's running long as it is. So, we're going to end it here. Um, thank you for joining me again on this this journey. We're making slow progress as usual, which we, is what we're going to be doing. It's going to take us a while. But hopefully it's an enjoyable journey even though it is long. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at issue issue pod where we'll all post I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll post when the episode's up. I don't really know what to put on the Twitter because like the good stuff is on the Instagram. But we'll I'll be posting when the when this you know when the episodes go live and anything you know as the the show. You know, maybe gains popularity, things happen. Who knows? But yeah, you can find the show on Twitter at issue issue pod, and you can find the show on Instagram at issue issue podcast, which is that's where I'll be posting all the primo panels that I found in this uh, episode's issues. Got some good ones. Got a tiny Wesley Dodds. Got Superman being a prankster. Got all that good stuff. Uh, So you can find those. Uh, on Instagram Uh, as always uh, find us on your podcast uh, app of choice and leave a review like and subscribe all that kind of stuff Uh, because you know word of mouth more people can join us on our journey through time uh, issue by issue uh, into the future so let's park the time gondola for this week we'll tie it up to the dock and uh, I'll see you all here next time as we continue We'll be getting into 1940, I believe, next next episode. Ooh, no, we will not. Sorry, that is I, that's me getting getting pumped for some more characters. But we'll be still in 1939 uh, next episode into the latter half, though. So we're almost to 1940. We're almost almost to Flash and Hawkman and all those kinds of guys. Uh, so yeah. So I'll see you all next time. Uh, bye. <music>